but the at the end of the day, I'm the main character of this story. And everybody's got to like never forget that fact. You are the main character of this story. And it's mostly on you to figure out how these things work. You're listening to What's it This Is Home. This is Home. This is Home. A podcast about families. We're going to be allowed to cry. Brought together through unlikely circumstances. We were lost. There was a few weeks where we didn't know where we would live. And the remarkable relationships they forge. I'm Erica Gerard, And I'm Emily Skihan. What does home mean to you? What does home mean to me? How's my jerk answer? A hammock? Your apartment in Los Feliz. Atwater, let's go. Oh, in Atwater, sorry. Home means safety. Home means comfort. What did the idea home mean to you? That's an interesting thing to think of because I didn't I didn't really have a, a personal concept of home until relatively recently. Like I love the city that I'm from. I feel like it, it played a pretty big role in in making me who I am. And so, I, and even though Chicago's a tough town, like um, I have a lot of pride having grown up from there. And I think maybe because it is a tough town. I met Cameron Drake sometime my senior year of college. I actually don't remember that much about meeting him, except having the distinct impression that he was really confident. He was this kind of scrappy, good-looking kid who talked fast and loud. I knew he grew up in a rough part of Chicago, and I knew that he had a little bit of a complicated family history. But honestly, I never asked him directly about it. This phone call was the first time I heard his whole story. The part of Chicago that I'm actually from is not a place that I like at all, really. The South Side of Chicago is very different from the Chicago that, I, that I'm thinking of when I say I love my hometown. Because, um, you know, you live in a different world if you live downtown Chicago than if you live on the South Side where I grew up. But I always, you know, aspire to be a part of that, of that other city of Chicago. Chicago is one of the most segregated big cities in the country. Residents consider the names South Side and North Side as a sort of code for black and white segments of the city. The South Side has a vibrant black middle class, but it's also where some of the largest and most dysfunctional public housing projects have left a complicated legacy. It's where Obama started as a community organizer. Much of the news about the South Side in recent years has focused on gang violence, the murder rate. This is where Cameron grew up. He didn't have the typical mom, dad, brothers and sisters under one roof situation. His mom was around more than his dad, but neither of them played a primary parenting role. For most of his childhood, Cameron was raised by his grandparents. The thing about anyone who's lived with grandparents can tell you that like grandparents don't just take care of their kids' kids. So there's a rotating door of people who move in and out of grandma's house when they fall on hard times and need help and a break. Cameron and his mom, his sister, and his two brothers moved into his grandmother Johnny May's house when he was four, the same house his mom grew up in. That actually changed a lot. And uh, that's actually soon thereafter, that's where my mom really started to succumb to drug addiction. Moving back to the neighborhood where she had grown up was tough on Cameron's mom. She was back around a lot of her high school friends, and drug use was something that was just happening. She got swept up into it and it would often cause her to go missing for extended periods of time. She tried for a while to, to maintain as an addict, but 
crack cocaine is a very difficult drug to live a normal life and, and be addicted to. So that didn't last as long as I'm sure she hoped. And as a result, um, while she would, she would go missing for long periods of time. So it would be months. It felt like forever when you're like four or five years old and your mother just goes missing and you haven't seen her in days or weeks. I don't, I can't even honestly tell you how long a lot of these times were, because like I said, as a kid, it felt like forever, but I could tell it would be at least months where she would, you know, disappear. And we would just have no idea really where she had gone because she didn't want to, she didn't want anyone to see her when she was in the worst parts of her addiction. And so she would just stay away completely. After a while, by the time I was in like first or second grade, my grandmother was done giving my mother chances to come back and take care of us and decided that she would um, get guardianship, legal guardianship over us. She was also having a hard time enrolling us in school and things like that because she wasn't our legal guardian. So she went to court to get guardianship of us. What happens in a situation like this is if no parent is in court to actually make a claim for legal guardianship or to relinquish legal guardianship themselves, then the court has to appoint guardianship over the minor. That's what happened in my case, which made me around the age of six or seven a ward of the court, which is the legal equivalent of an orphan. Johnny May wasn't new to working on child guardianship issues within the court system because she had actually adopted Cameron's mom from an orphanage when she was seven. And obviously being adopted at the age of seven is different from like giving up for adoption as a, as a baby. It comes with a lot more like strife and baggage that my mom's kind of struggled to deal with her entire life. And uh, my grandmother, Johnny May, though, she not only t treated my mom like her own child, she really loved my brothers and I, I, th I would say, far more than she's ever loved, she had ever loved anything else in her life. And then Johnny May passed away, and Cameron's mom was nowhere to be found. I'll never forget one of the craziest memories I have in my life is my dad has come picked us up. We haven't seen him in a while. He's like, we're just driving around, going to my grandmother's house, trying to figure out where we're going and how we're going to do all of this. And uh, we're driving down the street, and my little brother's about, I was nine, so he must have been five or six at the time. And uh, he just jumps up from the middle seat in the back of the car and like runs it over to over my brother to the window and starts pointing and screaming mom mom and we're like what are you talking about and then we realize he actually has spotted my mother on the street and this is like i want to say like two days after my grandmother had died he spots her on the street my dad slams on the brakes and hits reverse to fly down the street um because he realizes that my brother actually saw her and we get out of the car and she's so shocked and embarrassed to see us because she's in real bad shape. She's street walking in the, in the, in the midst of a horrible um, like run of a drug binge. And she sees us and I can tell she's like so hurt to see us. And she tries to pull it together to come over and, you know, be our mom. And she's like, oh, hey, how are you guys doing? Where's grandma? Is the first question she asks because we're with our father. And my little brother, being five or six years old, he has no way of, he has no filter. He just responds, literally, grandma dead. And my mom looks at him and she says, no, like, don't play like that. And he said, no, she's dead. And my mom just lost it. 
right there on the street. And it was like one of the hardest things I've ever had to see in my life was just standing there as a kid, having already gone through the worst parts of that realization myself and having my the youngest person in my life and introduce that information to my mom and seeing how not only the situation that she was in, she was already feeling so negative about, and then having that happen, she just, it did a number on her, it really did. Knowing that like, that's how that all went down. I can always relate with people who have lost a parent, and I, I know how horrible that must feel because when I lost my grandmother, it was like losing my mother and my father at the same time. Up until that point, like no one else had really done much work in raising me as a person and making me who I was. But Cameron never thought Johnny May loved him in the same way he loved her. She was a disciplinarian, a tough woman. It was only after she died that he realized why. What was really going on was she knew what I was capable of. She saw it before anyone else ever did, well before I ever did. She knew what I could do. And she refused to hold me to the same standard that she would hold everybody else. She always was treating me differently because she was always expecting more of me. And so when she died, I was a little, we were lost. There was a few weeks where we didn't know where we would live. My mother was nowhere to be found at the time that my grandmother passed. My father, I, I like had, I knew who he was like somewhat, but I didn't really know. I never lived with my dad. I hadn't lived with him since like the first year of my life. So I didn't remember ever living under the same roof as him. Never knew him well at the time. He was not in a position to take us in and take care of us. He, did, he lived in a small apartment on the south side. And my mom was nowhere to be found. So for the longest, we were actually thinking we might wind up going, getting put in the system, going, winding up in foster care. Cameron and his brothers managed to avoid going into foster care because they were adopted, this time by their paternal grandmother, who they didn't really know. Cameron described her as always being very respectful, but hands-off. It was around this time especially that Cameron came to understand he really had only himself to rely on. He was okay with that. It was just another reality for him. I noticed as I listened to his story, he came off as so nonchalant. It's just the way that he tells it. But the childhood that he had, it was full of things that are hard for kids to process. When I was a kid, I used to think because of all of the problems that I saw people suffering from, poverty, violence, um, death, um, drug addiction, I, I saw the boogeyman in the world as like those really horrible, preventable, but like, really horrible problems that were pervasive and big. And I saw those as like things that I could actually, under unfortunately, I came to understand. And I came to know what drug addiction was about and know that it's a bad thing that happens, but I understood it, which is sad to say, but I was like, yep, drug addiction, that happens. And poverty and people robbing people because they don't have any money, yep, that just happens. And so I once you accept that those things are just part of the world, when they happen, they don't upset you very much. Like, I got robbed at gunpoint a lot when I was growing up. And the first few times, you're you rattled and you're shook. But the, the, the tenth time you get a gun pointed at you, you're emptying your pockets, you're not phased by it. You just kind of like, it's just a part of life. And in Cameron's world, this stuff was normal. 
Maybe that's why he had an overwhelming drive to get out of Chicago. And he never stopped believing that he would, a belief he attributes to Johnny May holding him to a different standard from a really young age. He got involved in extracurricular activities in high school, which caused him to interact with people from different zip codes and different class backgrounds. I did activities in high school that caused me to interact with people from really wealthy neighborhoods, like white kids, basically, who were going to the Nutriers and the Downers Grove Souths of the world. I became really good friends with these people. I did mathletes and speech and debate and all of these activities where I was spending a lot of my time competing with and working with a lot of these people who lived in a completely different world than I did. And as a result, like I, and especially one thing that really made a difference was sophomore year, my best friend, Royce and I, we decided that we would do speech and debate. We decided to join the speech team. My school, despite being academically like fifth from the bottom as in all schools in Illinois, it had a all state, like really good speech team. Speech and debate is a crazy activity to begin with. And if you're gonna do it, you gotta wake up at like 5 a.m. every Saturday and put on a suit and drive two hours to go speak all day long. So it's like, it requires a crazy level of dedication. The consequence of his academic success, his drive to get out, was that Cameron's family and most kids at his school, they thought he was weird or trying to be better than them. You say it was lonely and you're right, it was, but I kind of, my way of having fun with that was I was just trolling people and I, I would dye my hair different colors just because it would weird people out. And I went vegetarian my sophomore year. People thought all sorts of things about that. That's what people said more than anything I did. At one point, I'll never forget, I was like at Thanksgiving or something, like my senior year, and my great-grandmother's in front of me in like the lie to make plates. And she's great-grandma, so she'll make your plate for you too, because she knows better than you do. Like She's just taking food and slapping it on my plate. And she goes to grab some collard greens and put it on my plate. And Collard greens are cooked in a ham hock. It's got a giant ham hock in it, so it's cooked in meat. So I can't eat it as a vegetarian. She puts it on my plate, I'm like, nah, big boy, I can't have that. And she's like, what do you mean you can't have it? It's greens. Like, you say you don't eat meat, but this is greens. I was like, no, I can't eat that at all because it's been cooked to meat, so I still can't eat it. And she's like, wait, you mean you, like, don't eat any meat at all? And I was like, no, I don't eat any meat whatsoever. And she pauses and thinks, and she's just like, are you gay? And I, I laugh, but like, that's how people feel about things like that, because I was, I was decidedly different. Emily, I have to say that hearing Cameron's story makes me so grateful for people like Johnny May, who know this kid, love this kid, and really step up to the plate when things get tough. I think the unsung heroes of foster care are really family. We call them kinship caregivers, so it's people in a kid's own biological family or extended family who, when for whatever reason that kid can't stay with their parents, really step up and let them into their home. And when we talk about foster care, I think they're often left out of the narrative. That's really interesting because when you say the word foster care, my brain doesn't think family. I automatically think of strangers first, like the kid is going to be placed with strangers, but it's natural that a kid would be placed with a relative before they go down that route, right? Yeah, and, and it's 
both, you know, sometimes it's a social worker who calls a family who's been certified as foster parents and they take a child they've never met before into their home. But an even bigger part of foster care is exactly this, relatives who make room in their home for maybe it's their niece or nephew or their granddaughter. And they really are where the ideal placement for a foster child Mm -hmm. is. Are there resources for kinship care in the same way that there are resources for just a straight up person on the street adopting? That's one of the tough things. Um, It depends where you are, but one of the problems with foster care is that often, especially if it happens informally, you know, if I'm a grandmother and maybe my daughter goes to prison or maybe my son gets really ill and for some reason can't take care of my grandchildren and I take them in, I might not even go to the system. You know, in Cameron's case, his grandmother did get custody of him and his siblings, but a lot of the time these kinship caregivers are doing so informally. And and sometimes even when they do go through the system, foster parents get paid. Mm. Often the rates for kinship caregivers are lower or sometimes even non-existent. How does that get determined? It's a state-by-state thing, but it's something that a lot of localities are actually trying to remedy because we realize the outcomes for kids who, when they can stay with family, they're often better. You know, you, you think about it naturally. These are people that you know you probably get to stay going to the same school if your family lives in the same neighborhood as you. So the foster care system is trying to do better to support these kinship caregivers, and and they should. So what happened to Cameron and his siblings? Yeah, let's get back to Cameron. Being the middle kid, I always felt like I was overlooked. I was always second to somebody or something. My sister was always smarter. My older brother was always better at sports. There's always me in second place to everyone. We were all competitive. Sibling rivalry competition was something that inspired me to do a lot. Like I say, my brother was better in sports, but I started running track in high school because my brother was running track. I was playing football because he was playing football, and I wanted to prove I can do it too. And literally just off wanting to beat him, I wound up going to state like my junior or senior year in track and cross country because I became pretty damn good at it. And the only reason I wanted to do it was because my brother was good at it. And that competitive spirit, along with his success academically, landed Cameron acceptance and a full scholarship to his dream school, Stanford University. I always say, like, we're all born with this idea that we can have it all, that all of the things that we dream of and want, that if we work hard enough and we do the right things and we, you know, we stay get ahead of the game, like, we can have it all and we're special. And it's ours if we just, it's ours for the taking. And as you get older, you, the reality sets in of the world that like everyone is not special. It's a fact. We can't all be. In fact, most of us are decidedly normal. And if that's the case, we're we're not going to get most of the things that we want. You have to learn with life and accept and grow and, you know, taper your expectations and be realistic. And That latter realization I've never accepted. I've literally never stopped believing for my entire life that I'm special. Everything that I want, I can have. And as long as I'm motivated enough, I'm going to have. And it's not, I know that that's probably not true. 
It's not that I believe that in the sense that I actually think that that's like a fact. It's in believing it and in choosing to believe it that it sort of becomes true. It's just a, it's a lie that I tell myself to achieve what I otherwise couldn't achieve. People always say, you know, is there somebody in your life? Was there some events that happened? And I can give so much credit to so many individuals whom I could not have gone as far as I've gone without their assistance. But honestly, I have to say that, like, the gist of this would have all still gone down if just for my self-motivation. No one was pushing me throughout this entire time. And that's something that is, like, it's hard for most people to really believe and understand is that I didn't have someone standing over me saying, you know, study hard, take this test, apply to this scholarship, do these things. I, all of those were things that I had to come to completely on my own. My school didn't have the resources. Like my school was trying to get kids to graduate high school at all. They didn't even they didn't have anywhere near the, in, enough resources to even think about focusing on how to get a kid into Harvard or Stanford. This is like not something that the, the career counselor at an inner city school of 3,800 people that graduates a class of like 380 really has something to think about. They don't have time to think about how to get a kid into Harvard or Stanford. And so I was flying solo on a lot of these things. Getting accepted to Stanford that was only one part of the equation. Now, he had to figure out how to physically get there. Unlike most incoming college freshmen, Cameron didn't have a parent, a sibling, to drive him to school, help him decorate his dorm room. He had to figure out how to get to a new school, in a new city, on his own. In fact, no one knew what the hell was going on. I remember it was probably like, three weeks before I was gone and my dad we're like sitting in my grandmother's kitchen and he's just like so like this uh this this school thing like how much is this gonna cost like like, like do we need to pay for this like how's that working out and I was like oh you didn't know I need like $55,000 tomorrow dude it's all covered like I had way more than enough scholarships to take care of it so no one really knew what was going on, but I was like, he's got this, he'll figure it out. And so I, because I was going by myself, I could not bring that much stuff. You could only bring two check bags without paying a, more, a lot more money. At the time, I think it was like $100 or something per bag after that. And it was just like all of this craziness with trying to fly and get to school. So I decided to take the train. Cameron took the Amtrak train from Chicago to California. It took three days. He arrived in San Francisco at 2 a.m. with all of his earthly belongings and no idea where the school was or how he was going to get there. He ended up taking a cab ride to Stanford that cost him almost $200. I mean, it was, it was a perfect example of like what it was like as a first-generation college student who came from where I came from having to make that transition because it was just like, figure it out. <laughs> like, now you're at 2 a.m. in a city you've never been to in your life with all of these things and you gotta get 40 miles from here and you don't have a, you don't have like a iPhone or anything. <laughs> Google Maps ain't a thing. Luckily for me, I've been put in that sort of situation my whole life. It's been seven years since Cameron graduated from Stanford. While at school, he landed a competitive internship at Morgan Stanley, taught himself to code, 
and worked for Apple. Today, Cameron's living in San Francisco, working in the tech industry, and thriving. He has a girlfriend and a community of friends, the same competitive spirit he grew up with. We were curious to know what his relationship with his family looks like now. What is your relationship with your family? I know you went home recently to see your dad and to see some of your siblings. What is that like now? What I'm about to say is, it's not an indictment on the members of our family that I'm referring to, and it's not unique at all. What I'm about to say can be said probably of everyone who's lived a path anywhere near similar to mine. There is a decent amount of people in my family who resent what I've done, and not because they think that I'm like made any mistakes or I'm doing anything wrong. It's because they see in the way that I've handled my life thus far that that I think I'm better than them, and that I don't appreciate where I'm from and what made me who I am. There's that school of people within my family. A lot of people don't say this to me, but like my brothers and my cousins, they'll tell me like, well, but you're not around. Like all these people like talking all this trash and like just basically hating. And I know why they're doing that. And I don't hold that against them. It's, I get it. I'm like, I don't ever need to address it with people because I understand they're just like, they're struggling from different problems and they know it's not as easy as it looks from the outside. They know that like there's good reasons why they're not where I'm at. They have nothing to do with me just like working harder and doing this. There's also a lot of luck involved. There's a lot of factors in all of these things. And so I don't really engage with that sort of negativity. What do you wish people knew about your childhood or, or knew how to do differently. I think that one of the things that luckily I was able to ignore, I was, it was a ballsy decision to ignore people when they, people constantly wanted to temper my expectations. That was something that, and they were not doing this to hate or to like discourage me. They were doing this to protect me. A lot of people who really cared about me didn't want to see me shoot for the moon and fail. They were just like, you know, you should probably accept the fact that this whole going to Stanford thing is not a given. Like, that might not happen. In all likelihood, it won't happen. And you should come up with backup plans. You should start focusing and not... You know, when you're growing up and you're a kid, you always get certain pieces of advices from everybody. Like, you'll hear it from every teacher you have in elementary school. Family members always tell you. You just hear it over and over again. For me, that piece of advice was you can't be a jack of all trades and a master of none. So if I had listened to the advice that all of the adults in my life were giving me, I would have sold myself pretty short. And also, like, people were telling me, like, I had teachers who thought they were helping me, who had, like, mentored me and helped me do my college essays. But when it came time to apply, these very same teachers are trying to discourage me from applying to Stanford early because they say I'm not going to get in because I'm competing against a more selective group. They're trying to tell me that like, I should put in an application for University of Illinois, Chicago, just to like have that as an option because I could get a scholarship or something to go there. And it's like, if I listen to people who are telling me this and they were well-meaning people, if I had taken their advice, 
I would be so far beneath my own potential. And I think that being realistic is the highway to mediocrity. And a lot of people don't see that as for the danger that it really can be. If you're in a situation like what I was in when I was growing up in Chicago, you gotta think big and you gotta keep thinking big. You don't accomplish great things by trying to accomplish great things. You accomplish great things by trying to accomplish impossible things. You gotta shoot for something way bigger than what you're actually gonna wind up getting if you wanna accomplish something special. It's hard to have the confidence to accept that. And like I said, it's also illogical, and I realize that, but it's a lie that I tell myself to accomplish things I couldn't accomplish. And I think that it's a lie that's necessary for a lot of people to, if that's how you gotta, if that's what you need to convince yourself of to do it, convince yourself, buy in, because at the end of the day, there's so much that goes on that's just you. There's so much that you have to learn about yourself. And that's why, like I said earlier, I'm very internally motivated. I couldn't even count how many people have literally saved my life at various different times. But the, at the end of the day, I'm the main character of this story. And everybody's got to like never forget that fact. You are the main character of this story. And it's mostly on you to figure out how these things work. I am so grateful to Cameron for sharing his story in the way that he did. You can learn more about Cameron by following him at Twitter at Cam Wes, C-A-M-W-E-S. Next on This Is Home, we're going to talk about the decision to have or not to have children. What is it like when you're part of a relationship to have that conversation on whether or not kids are going to be a part of your family? How do you have a family if you don't have kids? We're going to explore all this with a few couples who have had to make that decision themselves. This is Home is Erica Gerard, Emily Skihan, and Christina Lindstrom. Our sound engineer is Juan Diego Borda at Harmonix Studios. Music by John Maness. Logo and site design, Lane Carlsness at Broadsheet Design. That's all for this week on This is Home. See you next time. <laughs>